Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. My name is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. And Ron, we've been making a journey through the Psalms in this series, and we've had a very good time doing it, just observing the Psalms as a rich and diverse collection that addresses a full spectrum of human experience. The Psalms offer us something that nothing else in Scripture gives us. We've talked about the most common types of psalms, like lament and praise, thanksgiving, the royal psalms. These are really the larger categories, the largest categories in the psalms, and taken together, they make up about two-thirds of the book. Yeah, but there are many more, however, and in this episode, we're going to talk about those. Not in as much detail as we did on the others, but hopefully in a way that gives us a well-rounded sense of what we find in the book of psalms, so that we can come at them in a more informed way. We're simply sampling more of what is a deep and wide expression of experience that we find in this uh, longest book of the Bible. And remember, just briefly by way of review, that lament, praise, and thanksgiving each has a structure that identifies it with its category. They have a common form, but we don't want to get too mechanical about the form because there can be small variations from what we would call the standard form that give an individual psalm its own character, but at the same time, that leads it very identifiable as a lament or a praise song or a psalm of thanksgiving, for example. Uh, we saw that in the last episode with Psalm 116. But the rest of the categories aren't classified by structure, but rather by content. It's the subject of the psalm that identifies the category rather than the shape of the psalm. That was the case with royal psalms and also with the rest of the psalm types that we're going to talk about in this episode. Before we do that, though, we do want to make it clear that some psalms have a mix of types with characteristics of more than one category. There are a few, uh, maybe more than a few, that are somewhat difficult to classify as well. It's just hard to identify what they most resemble. And that's just part of the diversity of this collection of collections. This is a group of psalms that really cover a vast territory of history, experience, and emotion. Yes, and as we talk about the classification of psalms, we want to remember that the point of the whole discussion of psalm categories is to help us to connect with the psalm's meaning and to help that meaning connect with our lives. So insofar as some awareness of what the different kinds of psalms are and how they work and how this understanding can help us to connect with their meaning and to connect with them as Christians, then we've reached our purpose. The whole point is not to make the identification of the psalm. In fact, there's some disagreement among scholars as to uh, how certain psalms are classified, but we're going to leave those discussions to them and keep our focus a little bit more narrow here. John, when you first talked about the point not being to identify the form, my immediate thought was, well, that's exactly where I would go. I'd get so tied up in identifying the form that I missed what the psalm was saying. But there's an opposite extreme, which says, why do we worry about the form at all? Why don't we just simply take the psalm for what it is and look at it and take it on its face value, so to speak? I think we have a really good example from Psalms we've already discussed that help to explain that. When Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It helps me tremendously to know that he is quoting the beginning of a lament psalm that will ultimately end in a statement of trust. That's just one really good example of why it helps to know how these are classified.
You may remember a few episodes back when we talked about the Lament Psalms, that Lament Psalms have a section called the Trust Section. It's a place after the psalmist makes a specific complaint to God, to Yahweh, where the psalmist affirms trust in the Lord in the situation that he is in. So what we find is that sometimes there are expanded versions of these trust sections, these trust statements that stand alone as complete psalms themselves. So among these smaller categories of psalms that we're talking about in this episode, we want to include the trust psalm or the song of trust. And of course, one of the most famous of these is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, just familiar to so many of us. John, I sometimes think it's unfortunate that that is the most well-known of the Psalms, especially because people seem to come to the Psalms hoping that they will get more of the same. And maybe even more unfortunate is the context where they encounter it, which, as you've observed, is often at funerals. And the reading of Psalm 23 just seems to come across as, they're there now, don't cry. (laughs) And there has to be more to this psalm than this. So most of us know this one. What's going on with phrases like uh, being in the presence of my enemies? Right. This is not a psalm that is only about how God cares for us when we grieve or in a context of death. This is actually a psalm about living. Okay. This is a psalm about those whom the Lord shepherds, those who are under the leadership of Yahweh and under the care of Yahweh, how we are safe how we are provided for, and how we're protected from our enemies. So there's a lot wrapped up in this psalm about the safe and secure situation in which those who recognize Yahweh as their shepherd and trust Yahweh as their shepherd uh, find themselves. And Ron, as you say that, it makes me think of another psalm of trust that is often associated with death in a sense, but is really also about living like uh, Psalm 23 was. It's Psalm 16. One of the best known lines of Psalm 16 is something that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. He quotes verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. But uh, in its original context, now this is about trusting God for life, specifically uh, trusting God in this life, trusting God for what God provides for us and how God cares for us in this life and how the relationship with God between the believer and Yahweh is really the key to life and not in trusting other gods. In fact, there's a little bit of a reference in that psalm to trusting in others. This is about trusting in Yahweh for life. Yes, I was aware that this psalm seems to be about escaping death. And there is no doubt that when Peter quotes this in that sermon right after Pentecost, Peter interprets that line, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. He interprets that to mean even after death, God can step in and do something. And as far as Peter's concerned, this is talking about what happened in the resurrection of Jesus, that even in death, Jesus is raised from the dead. So Peter takes that a step further. Maybe, well, let's just put it this way. I know there are certain kinds of biblical scholars who would want to say, no, 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 Peter took it out of its original context. But John, you have a good way of seeing these two side by side. So how do you see these two working together? Yeah, when we look at Psalm 16, of course, we want to remember, first of all, that this is a song of trust. This is a poem about trusting in Yahweh. And we remember that in its context, the psalmist is thinking about this life. 
The psalmist is only thinking about this physical life. But when we come to it and apply our own understanding of eternal life, and we take into account New Testament revelation, when we take into account the idea of resurrected life, for example, we simply have a larger horizon. The psalm fits very easily into that larger horizon, even though perhaps that wasn't exactly what the original psalmist had in mind in the first place. In addition to the category, the Song of Trust, we also have another set of psalms that focus on Zion. We call them Psalms of Zion. And the focus of these psalms is on the city of Jerusalem. The word Zion carries a couple of different meanings in Scripture. When we say the word Zion, we sometimes are talking about the city of Jerusalem as a whole. Sometimes it's a poetic parallel to uh, the word Jerusalem, and we just mean the city as a whole. Sometimes the word Zion means just the lower city, the city of David, where the uh, original city that was called Jerusalem was located, was then expanded and, and and built upon and around over the years. Uh, and thirdly, sometimes when we say Zion, we mean Mount Zion in terms of the western hill upon which Jerusalem sits, which is the the more New Testament meaning, and of course, what is still called Mount Zion, that western hill. So when we look at the Psalms of Zion in this context, we're talking about Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem and specifically the location of the temple. These Psalms of Zion are songs that sing about, in a very longing way, the work Worshippers desire to be in Jerusalem and to be in God's presence. We can picture worshipers who thirst for the presence of God and who want to be at the temple, who want to be in God's presence, and who sing about going to the city and to experience this in Zion. That's really what's on the heart of the Israelites who might sing this kind of a song, and this is is deeply, deeply meaningful to them. A really good and well-known example of a psalm of Zion is Psalm 84. We hear this in worship contexts quite a lot in Christian circles. Verse 10 says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of of the wicked. So we can see here just the the value that the psalmist places on being in God's presence, being in the temple, being in a place of worship. When we get to the very end of the Bible, the last chapter of Revelation, there is an episode where John sees something descending from heaven. He says there's a new heaven and a new earth, and he talks about a new Jerusalem descending. And in that, he even concludes that by saying that he heard a voice from heaven saying, now the dwelling of God is with human beings. He will live with them. I'm curious, John, is this the best way for me as a Christian to make something of these Psalms about Zion? I ask because I've heard, uh, for instance, in the context of Latin American Christianity, I've heard people be excited about Zion. They know it refers to Jerusalem. They visit and they're disappointed with what they see. But (laughs) there, there does seem to be something more there. And if Revelation is any guide, it really does seem to focus on the presence of God. Indeed. Indeed. The 
focus in the Psalms is not on the city itself so much as the city as the place where the presence of God dwells. Okay. So we're not talking so much about the physical city, more so the idealized city as the place where we find God's presence. Now, of course, as Christians, we don't have to go to a particular place to worship or to experience the presence of God. It works a little bit differently for us as Christians. So you rightly point to the question, well, then what does this kind of a psalm mean to me as a Christian? What, 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 is it, what does it point to? How can I use it in my life? I think that parallel that you gave from Revelation 21 is really an excellent one. The psalmist longed for something that was to be experienced in the future, the arrival at Zion and the ability to worship God in a special and direct way that wasn't available elsewhere. And when we as Christians think about, yeah, what's, what's a parallel for that for us? And it's, yeah, it's the new Jerusalem. Uh, it's the new Zion, the new, the new experience of God's presence that we long for that is perfect and special and unmediated, and we have access to that. And our excitement about that, we might express that in many of the same terms that we might find in a Psalm of Zion, like Psalm 84. John, even if we take this back to its original context, I'm familiar with studying the ancient classical world. And based on that, if you ask me, hey, if you could go back in time and visit any city, what it, would it be? Well, it might be Rome, it might be Athens, it might even be, say, Corinth or Ephesus, or maybe even Roman Carthage, Jerusalem just wouldn't be on that list. So explain this to me. Why was Jerusalem perceived the way it was? Well, well, we have to go back and look at it through the eyes of the ancient Israelite and really understand that this temple built in the time of, of Solomon was really a magnificent edifice. It okay. was really a crown jewel among temples in the ancient Near East. It was magnificent. It was just built uh, beautifully, and it was really something to behold, something that really would drop the jaw of the ancient Israelite. Okay. So when we go back and think about what was this experience of looking on, approaching the temple, uh, or traveling to it from one's hometown far away, what was that experience like in the life of an ancient Israelite? The original Jerusalem temple built by Solomon was certainly not a disappointment to those <laughs> who were approaching it for worship. And then as I approached it as that ancient Israelite, I also perceived myself to be approaching the presence of God. And so that must be coupled with the majesty of the structure I'm looking at. Absolutely. This was not just a building or a place in which to do worship. It was the very house of the Lord, the place where, as the Pentateuch tells us, God would cause his presence to dwell. And the Israelites believed and engaged that fully. The next category of psalm that we'll mention here, and we'll do it briefly, is the historical psalms. Some of the psalms focus on reviewing the history of God's saving works among his people, reviewing salvation history, especially God's work of delivering the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt at the Exodus and forming them into the people and ultimately into the nation of Israel. So we have some psalms that rehearse this history. One of the best known of these is Psalm 78. And I just want to read a couple of the opening verses here. It says, my people hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. 
We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders that he has done. We can see that this sits in a tradition of telling the story of what God has done among us. And there's a group of psalms that we call the historical psalms that do exactly that, that help each generation understand, process, celebrate, reflect on, and then pass along the history of God's work among us. I couldn't help but hear the beginning of that psalm and think about the opening to 1 John where it opens up, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and have touched, this we proclaim. So that tradition Mm. of proclaiming the work of God that we see in Psalm 78 sure seems to be expressing itself in what Christians were trying to do as they told the message of what they had seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Another one of these psalm categories that is a a smaller group, like the ones we've been talking about elsewhere in this episode, is a group we call the Wisdom Psalms. And the Wisdom Psalms focus on the ability to make right choices in our lives. We see some contact with other wisdom literature in the way that there's often a contrast in a Wisdom Psalm between righteous and wicked, or a comparison that somehow exhorts the reader to live faithfully and not unfaithfully, or that gives advice about behavior that leads to good outcomes or bad outcomes, for example. These psalms, as a group, don't necessarily feel quite as worshipful or connect to worship as cleanly or as easily as some of the other types, but what we want to notice about them is that they do meditate on and celebrate what a good and faithful life is, because choices are part of our journey. And the psalms, especially these wisdom psalms, reflect that part of the journey. Uh, Psalm 37 is actually a well-known and very good example of a wisdom psalm. When you mentioned that one, John, it opens up with these verses. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. I read that and the whole rest of that particular psalm. And if you had taken that out of the psalms and given me just the text and asked me, what book did this come out of? I would have guessed Proverbs. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that would be easy to do. I would probably do the same thing because what you have here is little pairs of of wisdom sayings that are much like the prudential wisdom literature that we find in the book of Proverbs. So these are actually proverbial sayings that are brought together into a single poem and that celebrate wisdom in a very practical way. And so there's a very clear connection uh, between wisdom Wisdom Psalms and the Book of Proverbs. Ron, our final group of Psalms to look at in this episode is the Torah Psalms. The Torah Psalms praise God's instruction, which is probably the best translation of the word Torah, or sometimes called law. Uh, That's another way Torah is translated. But instruction, these psalms praise God's instruction. And the the wisdom psalms and the Torah psalms have some points of contact because we really want to remember that the basis of wisdom is faithfulness to God's instruction. That's how how we live wisely, is by keeping to God's instruction. So uh, Torah is how the will of God 
was revealed to Israel. So it is necessarily the way to true wisdom. This is a small category. There are not many Torah Psalms, but it does include Psalm 1, which we looked at earlier in this series. That's right. It's hard to forget that one phrase talking about the man who is blessed. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So that is that connection back to Torah. So we have something that sounds a bit like the wisdom psalm, but that has a specific focus on the Torah. And then as I understand it, the big one that fits into this category, this may be a small category, but it's got the biggest psalm. And that (laughs) is Psalm 119. (laughs) Portions of this I know very well because it was one of the first pieces of scripture I was required to memorize somewhere early in Psalm 119 is the verse that says, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? And I do believe my mother had handed me that to be memorized somewhere around age five. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So you have maybe some mixed memories uh, with Psalm 119. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) Yeah. Likewise, uh, one of the first verses that I ever memorized was Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. Probably a little bit easier as a child uh, (laughs) to grasp (laughs) than, than yours, but certainly both profound and worthy of memorization. Psalm 119, I'm glad you brought that one up because its organization is especially noteworthy. It's yes. it's put together in the form of what we call an acrostic. Okay. An acrostic poem typically has each line or each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. We have several examples of, of these in scripture, uh, but Psalm 119 really puts this on steroids and pumps it up as <laughs> yes. as big as it can possibly be because it's done in groups of eight lines. So the first eight verses all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Wow. The next eight verses uh, begin with the second letter. It goes that way all the way through the 176 verses of Psalm 119. (laughs) It's the most elaborate acrostic that I have ever seen and, and just absolutely beautiful in its orderliness, which is probably intentional given its connection to the Torah, to God's law or God's instruction, its completeness, its totality, its orderliness for our lives. As an aside here, it's worth mentioning that when the monks were working their way through the Psalms. They spent all of Sunday and a good portion of Monday getting through Psalm 119. (laughs) Yeah, the monks had the idea. They knew where to focus because (laughs) it's the delight of the wise and the way to living out a relationship with God and to enjoying the quality of life that comes with it to observe God's instruction, to do it God's way. It's a critical part of the journey toward the pure life of praise and focus on God that the Psalms lead us to by the time we get to the end. Our study of the Psalms is coming to its end, and we want to remind you that the Psalms come to a close with a series of Psalms from Psalm 148, 149 to 150, Psalms that focus exclusively on the praise of God. Remember, it opened with the invitation to choose the right way to go. It ends with unbridled praise of God. So Psalm 150 starts with these verses. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Then it ends with this verse. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
And hasn't that been our destination all along? We, yes. we started off in Psalm 1, standing on the front porch of the psalm, realizing that the psalms lay before us a choice. One choice leads in one direction. The other, however, leads to the choice that the psalms encourage us to lead us right. to, the praise of God that we find in Psalm 150, which is absolutely congruent with where the life of a Christian is to be focused and to be headed. It is our ultimate destination, and the psalms certainly help to lead us there. And even in taking this journey through the book of Psalms, we still haven't covered every single psalm type. We haven't covered every possible category of psalm that we find in the book. To avoid confusion, I won't name them, but I know specific psalms I can go to, and I'd have a hard time fitting them into one of these categories. So there's even more here that we've been able to cover up to this point. But these psalm types that we have talked about really give us a good sampling of the breadth and the depth of life that we experience as we work our way through the book of Psalms, Uh, not only the individual Psalms, but the trajectory that our lives kind of sync up with as we make this journey toward that destination, which is the praise of God above all else. In our next episode, we are celebrating episode 20. We have made it to that point, and we're having a special guest. We have someone joining our conversation with us. It's Dr. Craig Gilbert. We are, in a way, going to continue the conversation about Psalms, but we're also going to be talking about a few other things as well. I can't believe we're already to episode 20, and I'm excited, (laughs) too, to celebrate with this special episode with our special guest. Dr. Craig Gilbert is a nationally known worship expert. Uh, He's a writer, a clinician. He's the brains behind Purposed Heart Ministries, which is a worship resources and consulting ministry. I can't think of anyone that I'd like to have a conversation about the Psalms and worship (laughs) and some of the other topics that we're going to take up in the next episode than Dr. Craig Gilbert, excepting, of course, Dr. Ron Bentley, with whom I have had the privilege of all right. I was about to say there's been an awful lot of doctoring going on here, but okay, all right. <laughs> yes, and of course, after we complete that episode, we're going to move into our next series called Ultimate Hope Has a Name. And we're going to take a look at how the way that Scripture focuses promises and fulfillments on Jesus the Messiah, how that can really help us by fueling hope in our own lives when we understand, really understand, where hope belongs. We need hope, and this series is going to help us to identify where it is and how we can embrace it. That's where we're going to wrap it up for this episode, though. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for joining us. 